talking about people with intractable um, mental illness circumstances who have been suffering and tried absolutely everything uh, and that they get to the end of that journey and, they're, and they on their own recognizance make a decision uh, that, they, uh, that they've tried everything and, uh, and that they want to access made. What we want to make sure is that the system is trained to that standard. Um, that the That's the voice of Canada's Health Minister, Mark Holland, announcing last week the government will delay for another three years medically-assisted deaths for patients when mental illness is the sole reason they want help to die. The health minister said the country just isn't ready for this expansion and the government will postpone it until 2027. The decision to postpone this part of the MAID program, as it's known, came after a parliamentary committee reported that there's been lots of pushback from a majority of the provinces and from mental health experts. Ottawa feels the health system doesn't have enough trained personnel or even the capacity to add mental illness to MAID right now. Pierre Polyev, the opposition leader, says he'll disallow made for mental illness altogether if he's elected. But Ottawa is legally bound by some court rulings to treat mental illness like other physical issues and not to discriminate. The MAID program's been expanded once already. After 2021, you don't need to be just about to die in order to apply for it. Someone with a serious chronic illness can ask. Now, Jewish tradition about MAID is evolving too. The Orthodox still say no to medically assisted death as a sin, but the conservative movement and more liberal ones have become more nuanced. The Rabbinical Assembly now says it could be okay in very limited cases when suffering is so terrible. And as an alternative, they also feel it's okay to withdraw aggressive treatment that would prolong someone's life and their suffering. There are Canadian Jewish leaders who are strongly in favor of MAID. And on today's episode, we talk to some of them, including why they also support expanding the program for mental illness. I mean, absolutely. Listen, this is, these are really, really difficult questions. They've been hotly uh, debated. At the same time, I don't think that we can hold people hostage, people who are suffering hostage to basically the feelings of our society. I'm Ellen Besner, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for Monday, February the 5th, 2024. Welcome to the CJN Daily, a podcast of the Canadian Jewish News, sponsored by Metropia. Most MAID experts agree that Canada should do a better job of providing alternatives to MAID, including better palliative care and easier access to it, and also to find other methods for patients coping with mental illness because the conditions of poverty and despair of someone who is sick and alone shouldn't be reason enough to help somebody end their own lives. Meanwhile, the Canadian government's latest statistics show 45,000 people have used MAID since Canada legalized it seven years ago. In fact, MAID now accounts for over 4% of all deaths in this country, still a fraction of what kills most people, which is cancer. But more and more patients are taking advantage of the MAID program every year, especially in Quebec and B.C., where MAID deaths now account for about one in every 20. I wanted to speak to Jewish leaders who are deeply involved in the MAID debate. Dr. Karen Devon is a Toronto surgeon. She's one of nearly 2,000 licensed MAID practitioners in Canada. She's a medical ethics expert, and she's also a daughter of a Holocaust survivor, which guides her practice. And Rabbi Louis J. Sachs is spiritual leader of Toronto's Beth Torah Synagogue. 
The conservative rabbi has counseled community members and family members of patients who are ill and suffering. I met them both at Saxe's synagogue several months ago. And joining us now at our remote location of the CJN Daily in the Beth Torah Brides Room <laughs> in Toronto, I'm here with Rabbi Louis Sachs, and I'm also here with Dr. Karen Devon, who is a surgeon in Toronto, works at Women's College Hospital and the University Health Network, and is a lead practitioner of MAID at her hospital. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. <laughs> so I guess basically we should start off with a little bit of background. So I'll ask you, Dr. Devin, tell us a bit about what you're specifically doing these days with MAID and how long you've been doing it. When did you get started? Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'm trained as a surgeon. Uh, I mostly do thyroid cancer surgery. I'm also a general surgeon. Um, And of course, I'm here today not speaking on behalf of my institution, but just to tell you my personal perspective. But I have additional training in medical ethics. Um, You know, have always really been interested in the debates around end-of-life issues and have been following this for a long time. And then when MAID became legal in Canada, I actually had one of my own patients um, with metastatic cancer who was suffering um, very terribly um, request MAID. And I was present for that and was able to see what a peaceful and pain-free death that allowed her to have. And it was really then that I decided that I wanted to be involved with, you know, facilitating this um, for patients in general. And so it's something that I sort of do on the side of my surgical practice, like most made practitioners in Canada. Um, It's it's not usually the main part of our, our job, but something that we really feel strongly about giving patients autonomy and the ability to, to make that choice for themselves. Um, I'm actually uh, going to be helping a patient this afternoon. Okay, so we're going to talk about that in one sec, but I want to bring in Rabbi Sachs. How did you become involved in the medically assisted dying field? And, and when did that start? So I wouldn't necessarily call myself involved in the field, but it's one of the aspects of being a rabbi. It's actually one of the great privileges is being involved in families' lives in a really personal level. You don't know if you're making a big difference when you give a high holiday sermon to a thousand people. But one of the great privileges of the rabbinate is we get invited into people's very intimate moments, including into the hospital room and into really important decisions that affect people's care and future. And that's really how I got involved is visiting congregants that were in the hospital, talking to people that were considering made or people that had family members that had partaken of it and really getting to know them and their stories. They invite you in to give, what, a ruling or uh, like even a halachic permission? How, what does that look like? I wish I was living in the days when people came to their rabbi for a ruling on anything. Um, but generally, people are looking for counseling. They're looking for comfort. They're looking for different perspective. There are people that do really want to know what Jewish law has to say about their decision, and it impacts, I think, what their choices are. But for many people, they want to know that their decision's okay. And while I only speak from my own interpretation of it, right, I don't speak as Lewis Sachs, I speak as a rabbi. I speak with my understanding and interpretation of sources dating back several thousand years that I think lend themselves to an understanding with really is the purpose of made to help people alleviate suffering. Do you remember when the first one came to you, the first case? So I don't remember my exact first time uh, the issue of MAID has come up, but I could talk a little about my own journey because I haven't always felt this way. I remember in rabbinical school and my teachers, Rabbi Elliot Dorf, talking about when death is a blessing. 
And I remember then as a young rabbinical student thinking, how can death ever be a blessing? Every moment of life is sacred. Every moment of life is holy and valuable. And really immediately as a rabbi, I got thrown into seeing people in their hospital rooms in ways that really they were suffering, their dignity was gone, people that really I understood at that point when death can be a blessing. And that for me was really a big changing point. Um, And going along that journey and talking to people that were going through this or people that saw their family members go through this. And over the years, I've counseled different people that have been considering it. I've never been in the room and participated when it happened, but I'm getting more and more cases of people that are interested in it and want to learn about it from a Jewish perspective. Well, a lot of what um, the rabbi said really resonates with me. But I remember uh, when I first started thinking, like, this must be a little bit what it's like to be a rabbi, to just be at these kind of important life events and to help counsel patients. I think in some ways our roles are very similar in this time, although I don't often have the opportunity to address the specific Jewish perspective, despite having had several Jewish patients that I've helped. Many people maybe not actually know what it looks like. Yeah. And I know you can't say names of the people that you've had the privilege of working with, but maybe tell me some of your stories about what is it like? Who are they? Why did they do it? And it it could be the Jewish ones too. Yeah. So most patients that I see in general are patients who have a terminal diagnosis. And again, in order to be eligible, you have to meet certain criteria. You have to be intolerably suffering. You have to be in an advanced state of decline and have a very serious um, illness. Um, I've treated patients really all ages and all walks of life, um, from elderly um, patients who, you know, tell a joke when I walk in the room, Dr. Devin, I've been dying to see you, um, to, you know, patients in their, in their middle age who, I've had a patient who was battling colon cancer for many years and really took every treatment that was available and was finally, you know, succumbing to her disease. And she wanted to be surrounded by her parents and her friends and family. They had a tequila shot and did a toast to her and she wanted to say goodbye and be mentally um, intact, even though her body was failing her at the time of death. Um, With respect to some Jewish experiences, I've had some very memorable ones. Um, I happen to speak fluent Yiddish, and so I have done an entire MAID assessment um, in the Yiddish language, which is kind of remarkable. I don't uh, get paired up with particular patients. It's just sort of luck of the draw if if I end up being your MAID assessor. Um, But um, certainly it's been even more meaningful to help those patients. I've been told by patients' family members that what I'm doing is a mitzvah or an act of chesed, Um, I've been asked to recite the Shema uh, in one case, which was very, very uh, meaningful. Um, And then um, the Kaddish was recited by the the patient's friend um, after he died. Um, Patients are just so peaceful by the time this time comes. It's much harder for the families and and the loved ones. Um, But but the patients themselves are very ready and... um, you know, we always make sure that they're ready. They know that they can, you know, withdraw their consent at any time. I was going to say, can they change their mind the minute you walk in the room and they're like, no, I'm, I'm, I yeah. can't go through with it? Right. Has I that mean, happened? It, it has not actually happened in my experience. I know that there are cases where patients change their mind, but usually this is not something that people, a decision people come to lightly. They've been thinking about it for a long time. 
and they're usually very at peace by the time that the time comes. What I have seen happen is patients die before they're able to receive MAID, um, die from their disease. Um, Does it hurt to get MAID? What is, what, do you know? So, uh, you know, MAID is really one of the most peaceful and painless ways of dying that I have certainly witnessed. I've seen many people die throughout my career and sometimes in traumatic and painful ways. You know, the IV medications that we give um, are designed to make it that way. So we start with um, a numbing agent so that you don't even feel the medications going in the vein. It's given via IV medications. And we then give a sedative that makes a person fall asleep. And um, after that, a very strong dose of uh, general anesthetic, followed by a medication that makes sure that the heart has stopped um, it is not at all painful. Uh, mostly what you see is patient's pain uh, disappearing. And it takes what, about half an hour usually? Oh, it ta- no, More? it takes no much, much less. It takes moments to minutes. What legal frameworks do you both operate under when you, because you have the drugs to do it, and you also, if you counsel someone and assist someone, are you liable as well? So do you want to start, Dr. Demi? Yeah, I mean, I think the requirements and eligibility criteria for MAID are very clear. We have a rigorous system with procedural safeguards. And so as a physician, um, I, I really don't feel um, a significant amount of legal risk. Certainly, I want to make sure that I'm doing my job really well um, and assessing a patient thoroughly. Um, the process that a patient has to go through is pretty rigorous. Um, they you know, amongst having a written, you know, request form, um, they have to have two independent assessors and have to meet very strict criteria to be eligible for MAID. And so part of my job is to really um, talk to patients, understand their um, their life, their illness, their suffering, and um, determine whether or not I can help them in this way, but also to um, talk to them about all the other opportunities or possibilities for alleviating their suffering um, that might be acceptable to them, explore other options aside from an assisted death. So, um, you know, from my perspective, we have a good system with, with good oversight, so I don't have any um, particular legal concerns for sure. Now, you have different legal, halachic legal ramifications from what I read. The conservative movement has a body that rules on Jewish law, but those rulings aren't actually binding on its rabbis, other than three standards of rabbinic practice, which is a whole different podcast episode we could have. In general, the Committee of Jewish Law and Standards is there to guide rabbis because they have the time to really do in-depth research, right? These papers that Rabbi Dorf and Rabbi Reisner wrote on the issue of euthanasia are, I think, each about 100 pages or something around there with another 150 footnotes. They're incredibly in-depth. I read them. Mm -hmm. And one of the distinctions that's been made generally in both the Jewish conversation, I think in the secular conversation, is active versus passive, passive euthanasia, right? Letting someone die versus actively participating in them. And that's where MADE allows for the idea of actively participating in bringing about death sooner. But morally and ethically, we've made this big conversation, especially in the United States, about assisted suicide around active versus passive euthanasia. And I don't think there's such a distinction. And most Jewish authorities, especially liberal Jewish authorities in the non-Orthodox world, conservative and reform, permit passive euthanasia. So what that mean? Like withdrawing Withdrawing care and allowing someone to essentially slowly die. Starve to death. Or but once you've whatever. decided that someone's death is better than their life, 
right? That life is so much suffering and so much pain, it seems to me almost more immoral to say, I'm going to drag that out. I'm going to let them slowly suffocate. I'm going to let them slowly starve to death as opposed to the act of mercy, which is what I think made is designed for. I don't think morally there's such a difference between active and passive. And those that try to cling to that, I think are really deluding themselves. You want to weigh in on that about active and passive? Do you do both? No, so so made um, specifically refers to a physician assisting someone to die. So um, if you sedate someone palliatively, that doesn't that's not included in made, right? Just to make sure clear what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So first, if you don't mind, I'll just get back to some of the language that we use. Um, If you read about the court decisions and the legislation around uh, made, um, it's very deliberately not using the terms assisted suicide because suicide can be a triggering and traumatic um, language for people. And um, they tend to be deaths that we want to prevent. Um, And so I just I, I think it's important for people to understand the difference. So um, things like palliative sedation or withdrawal of um, life-sustaining treatment um, have been around in medicine for a very long time. What's different about MAID is that um, a patient who has thoughtfully considered all of their options is asking you to end their suffering by way of helping them die. It, it, it really is a very different process from, from those other kind of medicalized moments. But I want to I ask about... Two things. Number one, you are the daughter of Holocaust survivor. You speak about your family's experiences. And I know people who have, are cognizant of that might ask you, but how can you counsel t- to allow Jews to take their own life when Hitler murdered so many of us? How do you deal with that and how do you navigate that personally? Um, so, yes, my father um, of blessed memory uh, was a Holocaust survivor. Um, He was very well aware of this work that I do, uh, very much supported me, and in fact was very, very proud um, of the way in which that um, I'm able to help people. Specifically regarding the Holocaust, I think people sometimes conflate uh, different issues. What I see as the greatest atrocity of the Shoah is the fact that people had the freedom of their choices um, taken away from them. the freedom to choose their own fates. And I think that uh, in becoming a maid provider, that is exactly what I am doing for people, is allowing them to have the freedom to determine their life. While I'm definitely not an expert on Jewish law, I was raised with Jewish values and raised to be kind and compassionate, um, as well as with a commitment to social justice. And again, I think you know my role as a maid provider fits well within um, the way that I try to live my life. I hope it's not very often you get those kinds of accusations because that's that's truly that a comparison. I, I hope people aren't ever saying that to you or making that comparison of what you do to what the Nazis did because well, the two are... So that's interesting. I mean, I'll tell you that the overwhelming response I get from people, um, Jewish patients and non-Jewish patients, is that of immense gratitude. Um, that is mostly uh, what I am getting. I have had um, discussions with colleagues uh, across the border. I had a specific discussion with someone who heard what the work that I do and knew that I was the child of a survivor because I also have done some medical ethics work around medicine and the Holocaust. And he sent me a book about euthanasia and the Holocaust. And so, you know what? It's a great book. <laughs> um, it's very interesting. And it ultimately... You know, the work is part of, 
you know, personal growth and growth as a professional is to sort of clarify your values. Um, it's what you were describing as well as a rabbi. And that's okay. People can see things, you know, as they wish, but I'm very um, proud of this work. I know that I'm helping people and that's ultimately what I'm here to do. Just to, to bring people mercy and to care about them just is the total opposite of what the Nazis were. Absolutely. Can those people who choose medically assisted death be buried in a Jewish cemetery? Or is there a taboo about where because of the sin of taking your own life and of your body is God's, not yours to do with it, right? So I can't speak for right, every cemetery and uh, all the rules that govern. But in general, even when it comes to, to suicide, there's been a long-term practice of understanding that as a mental health issue and looking for leniencies to allow people to be buried, going back to the Khatam Sofer, a major Orthodox figure in the 1800s. But even today, I don't know of any mainstream, even Orthodox rabbis that are saying that someone commits suicide should be right, left out in the open or left to a non-Jewish cemetery. It's, it's someone that's struggled. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you from a logistics perspective, um, I fill out the death certificate for these patients and MAID does not appear on the death certificate. Their illness appears as their cause of death. Um, that does not mean, you know, that patients certainly can't discuss this, patients' families. I have uh, I had a very humorous patient um, who essentially had a celebration at the end of his life. And one of the jokes he made with me, um, well, in fact, he asked uh, me to um, help him die on a Friday uh, so that he could have an extra day at Benjamin's. <laughs> and so, um, you know, anyways, not to make, you know, total light of the situation, but, but certainly it makes sense that there's a variation in practice, but it, it actually does not, uh, is not the cause of death on the death certificate. There are stories in the Talmud and rabbinic literature that recognize when, when death is a blessing, when death is better than a life of pain. There's one story about Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, uh, one of the great rabbis of the Talmudic era, who was in incredible pain. And the Talmud actually talks about it, some kind of a gut illness that he had to keep going to the bathroom in pain so often that in every time he would take off his tefillin and put him back on afterwards. And everyone was praying that you know, he would continue to live except his maidservant saw the pain and the suffering that he was in when she witnessed him having to keep taking his tefillin off and put him back on, and how many times he had to go to the bathroom uh, and deal with his pain and suffering, that she threw something to distract the rabbis from their prayers and allow him to, to die peacefully. Right? Whether you interpret that more literally or not, sometimes death is better than life. A life of pain, a life of suffering, and... Right, I love that you have patients and family that tell you what you're doing is an act of mercy, an act of chesed, because I really see that. It's incredible and it's holy work that you're helping people to alleviate suffering. And that's, that's really sacred work. Thank you. I mean, I think um, also when thinking about when some of these laws were written or the stories that you're telling are from, I mean, there was a very different relationship between medicine and health uh, back then. And now we're in a modern society where technology has allowed us to really prolong life, which uh, much of the time is a, a great thing that we do, um, but it also consequently does prolong suffering. And so we really have to think about whether there's a distinction between living and, you know, biologic existence. I just want to end on your own personal experience with pushback, stigma, or 
criticism that you get from colleagues because you're the conservative, but you're on the sort of leading edge of it. So I'm certainly, I think, out of line with many of my colleagues. And part of that is, as um, Dr. Devin mentioned, right, that the laws haven't been updated. They're addressing a time when what was medicine was radically different than what we're talking about today. Look, the Rambam in his halakhic codes forbids people from eating smoked fish, but no synagogues banning locks because of that. But that was his understanding of what was healthy and not healthy a thousand years ago. He was right. Nitrates are bad for you, (laughs) as it turns out. Um, I always use him as uh, the reason I don't eat mushrooms, frankly, um, which I'm not a big fan of. But again, that's uh, medical advice from a long time ago. And, And that, I think, is one of the issues, is much of the discussion amongst rabbis has been under this category that doesn't really apply today when we look at what modern medicine can do and how long somebody can live this life of pain and suffering. And and that's one of the issues is that the conservative movement is so based out of the United States that they haven't really addressed this in recent times. Uh, The reform movement just made a very interesting ruling uh, recently in the last couple of years that really takes specifically into account made here in Canada and addresses it. And I really think it's time for the conservative movement to reevaluate its its views on this. Right, but that's not what I asked you. I asked you, what's your personal experience with people saying, how could you, or or, or good, or bad, either way. But you, you're on... You're not the only person in the city. You meet with other rabbis from different flavors of Judaism. What do you hear? Uh, I appreciate you uh, forcing me to get back to the topic that I wanted to avoid. I would say, while I'm outspoken uh, to anyone that asks me about my views, and I've also spoken in sermons and in talks and in teachings, I, till now, really haven't faced much pushback from colleagues. I have plenty. I know for a fact I have colleagues that disagree with me, but I also know that any of the rabbis, I know even the Orthodox rabbis that I communicate with certainly have better bedside manner that if they had a congregant that was going through this, even if they disagreed with it personally, is not going to go to them and tell them they're going to hell or they're going to suffer or that God hates them for what they're doing or anything of those sort. So while I might be different than my colleagues in my affirmation of MAID uh, and my support of it, I, I don't know any conservative rabbi that wouldn't be there for a congregant that wanted to talk, that was going through these choices, and at the end of the day, support them in any way that they could, even if they're making choices that they don't agree with. I don't want my congregants to eat cheeseburgers, but I have congregants that eat cheeseburgers, and I'm still going to be there to help them and support them and talk to them in any way that I can, uh, spiritually or personally or emotionally, and to help them in their journey. Has anyone in your immediate family or friends chosen MAID that you are aware of? There are people that have chosen it that I've which I've known very personally over the last six years and grown very strong, close relationships. And it was difficult in a couple of those cases, congregants that chose it after I knew them for for a significant period of time. Uh, It was hard to say goodbye. And at the same time, there's somewhat of a blessing that had the opportunity to say goodbye, which so often when someone passes away, we don't get. Were you in the room with them or you met them before? No, I've 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 never been in the room with someone as they actively participated in made, but I've spoken to people as they've considered the choice. I've been in the room as people have tried to express that choice to their family members that might not agree with them. Would you be there if they wanted you to? I would. I would. You do 
your practice, you said only in hospitals, but there are lots of elderly or other people who live in retirement residences, nursing homes, and also Jewish hospice places. And faith places do not all abide by the law. So how, what do you say about that? Yeah, I I must have tweeted about a a case that recently entered the news from BC. Um, We call these forced transfers. So there are publicly funded institutions that on the on the basis of a religious objection do not allow either a made provision or an assessment and provision on their premises. Um, and they are all over Canada and certainly not only Jewish ones. You know, I think what this ends up causing for patients, in particular this patient that was in the news, um, but I've heard of many stories of this, is a very painful process where the patient has to be moved or cannot receive made at all. Frankly, I think it's unconscionable that publicly funded system where practitioners who don't necessarily hold the views of the um, the institution they work for, and certainly patients don't necessarily choose to go by ambulance to a particular institution, um, are not able to exercise their, their right uh, that is legal in Canada. So I'll jump in, and this is when we all get some angry emails directed towards me after this. Funny, you mentioned actually the Lewis Breyer case. I used the CJN article about that in my uh, sources when I teach about this issue because it really was one of those moments for me that changed my opinion a bit about should faith-based organizations be forced to participate or not. And I do think there's a difference between forcing doctors and individual physicians to participate, I think, based on their faith they should be able to opt out. I agree with but that completely, insti- by But the institutions, way. <laughs> I think it's a difficult thing for institutions that are faith-based. But, you know, one of the people I counseled recently was someone that grew up Catholic that was at a Catholic hospital, and the nurses called in a priest from another hospital to talk to them and explain to them how they're going to hell, right? They're looking to alleviate their suffering, but their suffering here will be another week, another six months, a year even, is nothing in face of eternal damnation. And to say that to someone who is suffering in this incredible way is just to me so cruel and so awful. And it's something that I really believe that people have a right to make these choices for themselves, whether or not we agree with them or not. People have a right to, to make these decisions and our institutions, if they're getting my tax dollars, have an obligation to to give people those decisions. So Canada's considering expanding it to m- people who have mental challenges and are suffering mentally. How do you feel about that? And then I'll ask you too, because that's a whole different controversial area, which as we said at the beginning, the government sort of backed off a bit and goes, okay, we're going too fast, whoa, whoa. Again, I think the context is really important. Uh, May did not arise through sort of a government lobby or um, the people wanting it. It arose through a constitutional challenge. So it's a rights issue. And the original court decisions did not have a blanket prohibition on any particular group of people. And so then when the laws were put in place, um, these were challenged again. Uh, back in 2019 to say that, you know what, this isn't actually an expansion. It's actually just restoring what the original, you know, the intent of the original decision, which was to not, you know, criminalize an assisted death. And that it's really up to physicians and patients to figure out um, on a case-by-case basis how to move this forward. But they never really excluded a particular diagnosis 
Um, and I think excluding groups of people really can serve to further stigmatize those people and take away their um, their rights. I, I'll let you jump in in a second. The, the Some of the critics or the people who are worried about these kinds of expansions are saying, well, because society stigmatizes poverty and poverty is not a reason to, to take your own life, we need to do a better job of helping people live better with their lives as opposed to using this as an out because they're financially or otherwise you know, uh, disadvantaged, right? Am I saying that correctly? So I want to know how, how you both feel about, I understand legally why and human rights why, but there's that other aspect, which is really important. I think there, we have, we all have a lot of guilt on how our system works. Um, and, and I, I think that would not be fair. But I think this is a really difficult issue. And again, I think you have to remember that just because someone requests it does not mean that they are going to receive made. You have to meet um, a whole you know, bunch of important criteria. So I personally struggle a bit when it comes to the idea of assisted dying, when it comes to mental illness. And it's one of my big concerns when it comes to this conversation of making sure this is done to alleviate suffering. And this is meant to help the patient. I think there's some truth to the fear that some people have that maybe this is going to create a society where people feel that this is what you're supposed to do when you get old to a certain age to not be a burden to your family. And to me, that would be a really awful reason to partake of this is to simply not be a burden to the people that you raise that should be there specifically to to take care of you at that age. And when it comes to those under 18, or it's something that I, I, I personally struggle with, but There's also the slippery slope argument that so many people want to make to prevent really any movement on an issue. There's an old Yiddish expression I'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with, which I'll I'll clean up for the air, but right, if my bubby had wheels, she'd be a bus. Um, And and that's where I struggle with some of those those arguments of people bring the most outlandish cases of what if this person were to do it or that person, and under those rules they would. Have you ever said no to somebody? Have you ever counseled them no? I did uh, recently actually someone that uh, was talking about it from a mental health perspective. That was a case that I, I really struggled with because it's not clear to me that that is irreversible. Right? I'm not a mental health professional. I'll throw that out there to, to begin with. So my understanding of how depression works is certainly not uh, an expert opinion by any means. But the way um, I understood this case, it really worried me that... Uh, that they saw as their only hope of of ending their suffering. So how many would you say of your congregation people that you've counseled have chosen MADE? So I've only been in my current position for a year now, but in my six years as a rabbi, I've probably at least once a month, uh, if not more, spoken to someone about this issue. Every couple of years, I've taught a class on it and my understanding in more in-depth than halakhic sources. And often it's after that class, I'll get a whole bunch of appointments in the next few weeks. It's a conversation that I think a lot of people are having, at least internally. Um, Maybe if I could add a plug-in as well, just one of the things I always emphasize in these classes is besides physician-assisted dying, is that everyone should partake in advanced care planning at any age. And I really try to emphasize that as my takeaway, uh, whether people agree with physician-assisted dying or not. Advanced care planning is incredibly important. I can't tell you how many congregants over the years, I've seen have to make choices of, do I pull the plug? Do I remove the feeding tube? And then feel guilt for, you know, murdering their partner of 50 years when 
there really was no option. It was just going to be prolonged suffering. It was someone that had brain depth or was never going to wake up. And it's, it's incredibly painful for people to not only be in that position, but then have to wonder and guess what my partner would want. Well, that's one of the things the government is studying is this advanced sort of like DNR plan, you know, that you sign when you're uh, competent and then some point in the future later when you're no longer then how does that still is it still valid so that's a whole thing they're still studying which is there anything else that we didn't mention that you want our listeners to understand and uh... um i know that my father and i had many discussions about whether that was something he would choose and he was very fearful of having a painful death um i'm so blessed that he had a very peaceful and painless death at home without maid um, however, it's something he absolutely would have considered and that I think I would as well if, uh, you know, the situation um, was appropriate. Yeah, we conclude very similarly. Um, we don't talk about death. It makes us all uncomfortable. And it's awful to see your loved one in that kind of a state or condition. And it's even more painful to not know what they would want and have to guess. And I've seen siblings not talk to each other after that because they had different opinions on what to do with mom or dad. And what an awful thing when families should be coming together when they lose a parent instead it's tearing families apart sometimes. Or children uh, not talking to a parent because they, changed, they did something that they didn't think their mother would want done but their father said this is what they would have wanted. Um, because while made is something that the individual chooses, there are often times moments when family members are forced to make these difficult and painful decisions. As for my own future choices, maybe I'll just say I'm, I'm very happy that I'm living in Canada right now and I'm in a place where it's a choice. I'm very happy that if I wanted that, it's an option that's available to me. I can only hope that I get to be in a place, uh, a hospital that's willing to honor my decisions and not gonna force me to go somewhere else. Kolokavot to both of you for this deep conversation. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for um, having us to, to talk about this. It is an important topic. Thank you. Don't take half measures when it comes to home security. Alarms and cameras work, but they'll only tell you that your worst nightmare just came true. Safety Screen by Metalex for windows and doors will keep your family safe and sound with real stopping power. They can't be cut pride or bashed in so you can enjoy carefree ventilation in the spring and fall with peace of mind and protect your fixed windows and doors with rock glass an absolutely unbreakable clear covering call 416-638-2539 or visit metalexsecurity.com to book your free consultation that's m-e-t-a-l-e-x security.com remember prevention is always better than the cure And that's what Jewish Canada sounds like for this episode of the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia. Integrity, community, quality, and customer care. We asked for an interview with Yara Sachs, the Minister for Mental Health and Addictions, who helped introduce the government's bill last week that will postpone adding mental illness to the MAID program, but her office declined. According to the latest statistics, most of the Canadian patients choosing medically-assisted deaths applied to the program because they were suffering from cancer, mainly lung cancer, and the rest who chose MAID had heart and lung problems, and behind these were patients with neurological problems like Parkinson's and Lou Gehrig's disease. According to the government's latest figures, more men than women choose MAID. The average age of a MAID patient was 77 years old. 
Thanks for listening to the CJN Daily. I'd be interested in hearing your own experiences and thoughts. As always, I'm at ebesner at the cjn.ca. Thank you.